We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and we are breaking off from our 2021 player reviews during the offseason for a moment to recap the news and gossip from the general manager meetings that just took place at the Omni La Costa Spa and Resort in Carlsbad, California, just north of San Diego. The Chicago White Sox really have made just two big moves this young offseason. They picked up the option for Craig Kimbrell, and they didn't make Carlos Rodon a qualifying offer. General manager Rick Hahn has addressed his thinking on both of those matters, plus other positions on the roster that we'll discuss on this episode. Joining me to recap is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hey, Jim, how come we don't have a Sox Machine retreat at a fancy resort like the Omni La Costa Spa and Resort? I'd say that people should support us on Patreon, but I think that would cause us to lose subscriptions. <laughs> Unless they could come. Yes, <laughs> yeah, like a super tier, like a billionaire donor tier. <laughs> if Sox Machine had a retreat, what destination would be most fitting for us? Hmm. Good question. I like northern climes. <laughs> oh, do you? Okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, we could just do it in Downers Grove. Yeah, Alter Brewing. <laughs> Beautiful downtown Downers yes. Grove. Yes, that's... If we had a Sox Machine retreat, that's where that's where we would be. Uh, but we are not a Major League Baseball general manager, so we were not in Carlsbad, California at a fancy resort. Uh, but Rick Hahn was, and he spoke to the media the last couple of days answering their questions about various topics of the Chicago White Sox. We're going to start with Carlos Rodon, and this is what Rick Hahn had to say about the situation with Carlos Rodon. As a free agent, there's only so much that I'm allowed to say, but I can certainly praise uh, how fantastic he was for us over the bulk of the season, and uh, that it'd be great to figure out a way to, to bring him back in some capacity. Obviously, uh, this isn't our, our first foray into free agency with Carlos. We had this same or similar situation, at least in terms of his rights, uh, last offseason last off uh, when, we, when we had an interest in bringing him back and was able to work it out then as well. So we'll see how the market unfolds. Uh, obviously, he's coming from a, a much better position, which we all benefit from over the benefited from over the course of the 21 season. And, uh, you know, on, on a personal level, it's just, it, it was great to see uh, a kid who had been through a lot and had a lot of adversity, uh, fulfilled a promise that our scouts and player development people all saw for him back when we when we drafted him out of NC State. So from that standpoint, it's a it's a, a bittersweet day because he, he he met that potential. And, and now, obviously, he has the uh, benefit of exploring his free agent options. Now, after Rick Hahn shared his thoughts, it also happened to be that Scott Boris had his annual press conference 
with reporters. And the fact that he's doing this during the GM meetings and not the winter meetings, which is what he typically does and having a chance to experience that, boy, is that an event, probably suggests that there's not going to be a winter meetings for Major League Baseball. There will be one for the big trade show. And if you want a minor league baseball job, they'll have the big job there somewhere. I think it's now in Orlando. Uh, But the winter meetings that everybody else knows for Major League Baseball, probably not happening if Scott Boris is having his big press conference at the GM meetings. What Boris said about the Carlos Rodon situation, we were going to decline the qualifying offer. So thank you for not offering it. Paraphrasing Scott Boris. Ashley Rodon, Carlos's wife, tweeted out, so thankful for Chicago. We love you guys. Always will. So excited for this next step of the journey. And Bob Nightingale of USA Today tweeted uh, shortly after the White Sox made the announcement that they were not going to be making the qualifying offer, uh, that the White Sox knew at the end of the season they weren't bringing Rodon back. And even Dallas Keuchel was asked about Carlos Rodon after he won his gold glove. And Keuchel also stated, yeah, he's probably not coming back to Chicago. So on one side... You have Rick Hahn, who is not closing the door on a reunion. On the other side, everyone else, including members of Rodon's camp, uh, is suggesting that he's not coming back. Jim, what is Hahn trying to sell to White Sox fans? And I would say maybe to Scott Boris and other teams in Major League Baseball about the White Sox interest in bringing back Rodon. I think it sounds like professional courtesy. Like, theoretically, he could come back. Uh, There's no reason to say he's not coming back. Like, yeah, I I guess the way I look at it is that, you know, if Han said, well, he's not going to be back, you know, like, that could be taken a lot of ways. And, you know, most of them negative. You're perhaps like saying, like, whatever he's going to be asking, it's not worth it which is kind of a way to kind of kick him out this door. And then there's, you know, the other thing saying that uh, uh, we're done with him. You know, that could, that could be taken that way. And so I think for Han to say that he could be coming back, it's just because he's not a member of another team. So theoretically he could. And by saying that we would like to have him back under certain terms or, um, you know, there are ways that he could fit in the roster. It's, I think he's just being... Generous in spirit, I, I suppose, and just try not to invite controversy where there isn't none. Like, I mean, if it makes business sense for Rodon to find uh, all offers and find the best uh, suitor for him, that's great. If it's in the interest for the White Sox to not spend what Rodon is asking and and you know use those resources elsewhere, that's also fine. But I think Johan know, is just more or less inclined to let eventual decisions. Uh, do the talking for him, whether it's Rodon sending somewhere else and closing the door on that for him, or in the case of the qualifying offer, um, whatever happens to Rodon in 2022 might answer just what exactly the White Sox were thinking and not issuing him the qualifying offer. So let's circle back on that point, not issuing the quali- qualifying offer to Carlos Rodon, and maybe it jabs a bit of a dagger in the back when you hear Scott Boris say, oh, I'm so happy they didn't make a qualifying offer to Carlos Rodon. Thank you for not doing that uh, because we weren't going to accept it anyways. And there are some White Sox fans feeling, oh, well, the White Sox missed out on an opportunity of gaining a drop pick compensation for Carlos Rodon, depending on the contract that he signs this offseason if he does sign with another team. Uh, I don't know if Rick Hahn would have been able to guess what Scott Boris or Carlos Rodon were thinking when they were making this decision, Jim, because it's easy for Scott Boris to say this now mm-hmm. after the fact. Yes. But if Rick Hahn called him up before making the decision and just straight up asked Scott Boris, hey, Scott, what is Carlos thinking here? Would he accept a one-year $18.4 million offer from us? I don't think Boris would have been, I don't want to say truthful, but completely transparent on what his and Rodon's plans were for this offseason. And the White Sox would be sweating until Carlos made it official 
that no, he wasn't going to accept that qualifying offer. There would be a, a, a big risk, depending on what Rickon's budget would be, if they had made that qualifying offer. Yeah, there's no reason to believe Boris or take him at his word. And that's partially his job is just to represent his client. And uh, in, in the way he chooses to do that, I, I wonder about, like when he's coming up with all these puns based on player's name, like who is that for? <laughs> I get. I guess it's kind of for reporters, but like, is he just like, is this something he loves doing? Is he just want to be like a, um, is he always wanted to be like in a writer's room at a sitcom or something like that? And this is his way to do it. And he has a captive audience. And so he gets his, uh, uh, he gets his reps in that way. And, and yeah, I, I just don't quite know who he's serving, you know, by making these, um, you know, saying Chris Bryant is the new Sean Connery. Cause he's always in the hunt for red October or hunt for October. <laughs> And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Scherzer to the max and all these, you know, crappy bumper sticker slogans. But when it comes to the, you know, how he's presenting himself in Redon's case, like it did seem kind of unnecessary, um, a little bit of a jab um, at the White Sox and a little bit perhaps, you know, maybe he's jabbing them in the sense that, oh, you're undervaluing my client because you don't think he's worth $18.4 million for next year and so you know haha he is and uh you know we're going to enjoy pointing that out as we are now able to shop him for an offer that might come close to that on an average annual value because he doesn't have the draft pick compensation attached um but it doesn't seem like a great you know if, if you're hoping the boris white Sox relationship will thaw when it comes to any of the top free agents like uh marcus semin and michael conforto like that doesn't seem great you know it doesn't seem you know i guess boris did say nice things about the white Sox when it came to how they managed rodon through his uh comeback season and then in getting him through 120 something innings uh to you know have the nice full season that gets cy young consideration so he did say that but it did strike me as a jab like oh this relationship still is poisoned <laughs> more or less like so that that was my read on it is you know you don't have any reason to believe rodan be, or uh boris because like he could have just up and accepted that 18.4 million and said like this is a we feel like it's a fair value for 2022 ideally we'd like a longer contract but we feel confident that carlos can capitalize on the season and go into a free agency um you know making that money for a multi-year commitment. And we're comfortable doing that. Like he could have easily said that if the White Sox issued the qualifying offer. So, uh, you know, like I wrote about um, when it came to the White Sox and the qualifying offer and, and with Han saying like everything we know is kind of the, the, the term or the phrase that stuck out to me. Like, uh, does he mean everything we know being like what the trainer's room is telling him? And, and what, you know, perhaps imaging has told them uh, that he doesn't want to come out and say because he doesn't want to tank Rodon's market like that's just you know to 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 I guess continue the theme of courtesy uh you know just there's no reason to take shots at Rodon or consider him damaged goods or even like hint that um but just when he said everything we know just that struck me as like "Eh, they could be talking about just um whether they think they can get more than 130 innings in a season or whether 130 innings represents like a 70th or 80th percentile outcome for his workload like that's that kind of jumped out to me and with 18.4 million and where the White Sox are and you know if you're looking at the offseason plans and just how tortured some people are and trying to stick under the 170 million dollar limit that I put on the offseason plan project like if if they're not serious about the you know about being able to carry Rodon at 18.4 million and when you see Wade Miley get waived uh after an equivalent season in terms of run prevention and the Cubs claim him off waivers just for $10 million for one year for his option. Uh, that doesn't make me think Rodon is a whole lot of trade value at 18.4 million. So they can't like get out under it from that way that it just seems like in this, this climate, like if you can't offer him a contract in confidence that you'd feel okay about him taking it, like say the Dodgers with Chris Taylor, which is another surprising one. But if he came back at that figure, the Dodgers would be fine with it. Like if the White Sox would not be fine with it, then it strikes me as like, well, maybe they're doing the prudent thing and just avoiding it and taking the hits and and taking the criticism. And then we'll see how it works when uh, the dust settles on 2022 and what Rodon's workload ended up being. Yeah, if the White Sox had made that qualifying offer, 
to Carlos Rodon, and he accepted that, Jim. And picking up Craig Kimbrell's option, you would be at $178 million payroll for the Sox Machine offseason plan project. We're already getting people saying how tough this offseason's plan project is because you only have about 20 to $30 million, depending on the choices that you made. To find a solution in second base and right field and maybe a backup catcher and maybe another starting pitcher and a reliever. There's not enough money to go around. Boy, it would be set on extreme level of difficulty if you had to cut $8 million and then still try to find a second baseman and right fielder and backup catcher. Uh, and maybe another reliever uh, if Carlos Rodon would have accepted that qualifying offer. That might have been the end of the White Sox offseason, de- depending on what their budget is. Uh, so it, it makes sense. We felt that Carlos Rodon wasn't going to accept it anyways. And in the end, what we thought was going to happen after this season probably is going to happen in that Carlos Rodon is going to sign with another team and not be returning to the Chicago White Sox, especially what people from his inner inner circle have already tweeted out uh, to the public on what is next for Carlos Rodon. Let's move over to Craig Kimbrell. And I want to start by saying that it was just announced that Liam Hendricks was named the 2021 Mariano Rivera American League Reliever of the Year for the second straight season. Keep that in mind, um, because when Rick Hahn was asked about Craig Kimbrell, Hahn said, quote, we view him as a potentially impactful reliever as he's been for the vast majority of his career. We're not alone in that opinion. It didn't work out the way we wanted last year, so perhaps there's a better use of his skills than how we were doing it. So we have to reconsider his usage with us versus a potential trade. Rick Hahn also added that if the White Sox were to decide to keep Kimbrell, they may have to use him in the role that he's most successful in, which is closing games. Again? Hendricks is now the back-to-back American League reliever of the year. Jim, I don't recall Rick Hahn ever mentioning a potential player being traded since moving Chris Sale. Uh, Jesse Rogers, the ESPN Chicago, pulled a quote from an anonymous source saying that Kimbrell is good as gone. How do you think Kimbrell's situation unfolds? A trade. Like, like you said, uh, <laughs> just when it comes to saying that, um, you know, he mentions the word trade in association with the player, uh, the way you so seldom hear it, except for, like you mentioned, Chris Sale and that whole off season of the writing being on the wall and, and understanding the role that's in front of him, especially like say with, um, you know, after the first moves were made with the rebuilding trade and like Jose Quintana was then on the block. Like that's when you heard it. And usually that means it's going to happen sooner or later. And I just don't think there's, you know, when he's talking about uh, how to use them, how to theoretically have him on a White Sox team and whether he throws the eighth or the ninth and just, I think it's all just, um, I'd call it posturing, but it's really just, uh, filling time. <laughs> I don't think he's trying to pretend or, you know, I don't think he has any illusion that what he says about Kimbrel is going to affect how teams like perceive how the White Sox are going to use him or <laughs> whether they'd hold on to him. Like, I think all the other teams are aware like, oh, they want to trade him. They, they don't want to keep him. It didn't work out. Now they're just going to see if they can trade him for somebody else's problem or, live low level arm something like that um but yeah there's just no real reason to think that he would ever get to a point where he's usurping how tony larusso wants to use liam Hendricks. like it just doesn't seem really like there's any point in talking about uh how kimberl could fit on the 2022 white Sox. i agree with that point because again Liam Hendricks just won American League Reliever of the Year for the second straight season. And the White Sox have already made this big investment 
in the bullpen. Craig Kimbrell was supposed to help the 2021 White Sox, and we thought when they acquired him, well, if he pitched well enough, then he's going to help the 2022 White Sox. He didn't help them. They have other areas that they need to address this offseason to be stronger next season. I'm with you. Kimbrell, as Jesse Rogers pulled the quote from whatever source that he spoke with as far as MLB executive, is good as gone. When that happens, we'll see. uh, Because I believe Rasiel Iglesias, he got a qualifying offer. And Kenley Jansen is a free agent. That's the competition for Rick Hahn trying to move Craig Kimbrell. And we'll see in how the closer market unfolds, but there's three closers right now, proven closers, that if a team's looking to shore up their ninth inning guys, uh, they have those three options. And I am sure Rick Hahn is already fielding phone calls about Craig Kimbrell. And uh, Jim and I both agree that Kimbrell is good as gone. So if that does happen, or I should say when that does happen, the White Sox current player payroll for the 26-man roster when you actually fill out the entire 26-man roster uh, with the internal options is about $160 million. They trade Kimbrell, and if they don't eat any cash, then they're down to $144 million, uh, which would give Rick Hahn, if the $170 million payroll budget is correct, would be about $25, $26 million that the White Sox could spend to address other areas uh, that they need to on the field. And one of those areas is backup catcher. And Rick Hahn was asked about the job that Sevi Zavala and Zach Collins did, Jim, this previous season. And he said something along the lines that they were both thrown in. And it, obviously... You know, the White Sox were not expecting or planning on Yasmani Grandal to have midseason knee surgery, even though it was minor, uh, for him missing a significant part of the middle of the season. So I agree that they had to take on a lot. And it is a big role, especially when you are trying to replace Yasmani Grandal. If this was 2016, and they were trying to replace Diarno Navarro, uh, it's not that big of a hurdle. Uh, it's a climb. However, the part where Rick Hahn said that perhaps they were rushed is something I don't necessarily agree with. And in your column on SoxMachine.com, you are also agreeing with this point. Why do you think Rick Hahn would say that throwing Zach Collins and Sebi Zavala into the catching role while Yasmani Grandal was out this previous season, was rushing their development. Something to say, I think, is really the <laughs> first answer. I, I think, you know, maybe if he were to revisit that quote and answer it again, like he might not use rushing their development, but maybe just say some other form of asking too much from them, um, you know, given the experience that they had. Like maybe... Uh, you know, they aren't starting catchers, you know, maybe their ideal form is backup catcher and having like a nice stable season as a backup catcher might have better prepared them for taking on the bulk of the work with Grandal out. And, and so that's what I'm thinking he was more getting at versus like they weren't ready for extensive major league uh, experience just because between the two of them, they have about 460 high minors games between double A AA and triple A. Like they're, they're both closer to 30 than they are to 20. So if not now, then when, when it comes to getting some run in the majors, and especially in a season where they, there's a big divisional lead. So it's not like they're being counted upon to uh, you know, help a pitching staff get through a pennant race and uh, do all that kind of uh, you know, necessary uh, game calling, pitch framing, every pitch counting, every start counting, like nothing, that pressure was there. And even then you saw major deficiencies in blocking and framing and throwing between the two of them. Uh, you know, like, you know, uh, Collins receiving was rougher than Zavala's Zavala's pitch. You know, people talked about, you know, Grandal's blocking and receiving or, or his, his catching should say like his actual act of catching the ball. But, you know, Zavala was like a past ball wild pitch machine. Like he just, he had more trouble than anybody when it came to just stopping pitches, catching pitches in his mitt. Uh, just that he really struggled with that. So when it, you, know, you look at the, their, the jobs that they did, it just struck me as they weren't 
worthy of that kind of playing time. And, you know, it just might be above their pay grade. <laughs> and, you know, baseball is tough. It's a tough sport. It's not like a personal, um, you know, it's not like a mark on them for being, you know, less than others when it comes to work ethic and, uh, you know, putting their best effort forward. Um, they just, you know, perhaps especially in a case where they're replacing an all-star like Grandal just couldn't get the job done. So that's, that struck me as just trying to say that, you know, it was just asking too much of them and you know, there's no reason to knock them. <laughs> they tried their best. Um, you know, there still might be use for them in the system as a third catcher. Like I think if they're in Charlotte as the emergency catcher, that's not a bad situation. And they could have use to another team in that kind of situation where a third catcher or a second catcher that doesn't have to be used that often for a, a second division team. Like that, that's also the case. So there's no reason to knock them. And I think Han was trying to speak well of young players who did what they could. So that's why I think that, you know, I'm not inclined to make too much of that, but I also think like when you read it, you know, he talked about other positions like right field where you have Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets and you have second base with Romy Gonzalez and uh, just, perhaps Larry Garcia, if he comes back or other free agents and you can see like, okay, I get what he's saying. I don't like it, but I get what he's saying. But with catcher, that's one where I think you read it and say like, now they can find somebody else. Yeah. And I believe Zach Collins doesn't have any more options going into next season. Is Sebi Zavala in the same situation? Let me look that up. (laughs) I don't mean to sound rude, but I just haven't, it hasn't occurred to me one way or another. That also complicates matters for the White Sox because if they were to bring in another veteran catcher and they deem that that veteran catcher is best suited as Yasmani Grandal's backup on the 26-man roster, then they're going to need to slip Zach Collins and Sevi Zavala through waivers and try to get them to Charlotte while exposing them to other teams that can make a claim on either Collins or Zavala, and they could lose them during that process. Well, I think, actually, I think Zach Collins has one more option left because they option him down to where it wouldn't count. Oh, they saved that option. I think so. And then Zavala? Zavala's out. Yeah, okay. Uh, Zavala, <laughs> you're in hot water, man. Uh, <laughs> I don't like your chances. I don't like your chance to stick it with the White Sox in 2022. Well, maybe. I don't know. If if another team doesn't think highly of Sebi Zavala, then perhaps he can he can sneak through and accept the outright assignment to Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Whereas Zach Collins, if the White Sox did save that option, yeah, then Collins is going to be option to Charlotte. I, I still think it's going to be worthwhile for the White Sox. Uh, to find a backup catcher that's much better defensively than Collins and Zavala. Uh, someone you don't have to worry about. If they can't hit, that's fine. It's it's more about the defense, the pitch calling, making sure the White Sox starting pitchers are comfortable throwing to them because there were there was definitely hiccups this past season with Collins and Zavala. And who knows, maybe Grandal may have to miss another month or for XYZ reason in 2022 be the White Sox would be better off having a veteran catcher back there who could spell time for weeks, hopefully not longer than that uh, for Grandal if need be. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. 
Need to hire? You need Indeed. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. All right, so that's the backup catcher, and you touched on right field, which brings into the Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets discourse and Adam Engel. The White Sox may have internal options. They could lean on for that position at second base. Rick Hahn has mentioned Danny Mendick and Roby Gonzalez as possible internal options. I have a very difficult time buying into the idea that the White Sox could be okay at right field internally. Because this has been a conversation and the reason for my deep sigh is that, man, we have been podcasting for eight seasons. It's almost our ninth season we've been podcasting together, Jim. And we have went down this road already. We've been down this road of, oh, look at this outfield logjam. One of these four outfield prospects should be able to handle right field. And they all fizzled out. And this goes into the whole, there's White Sox fans saying, oh, well, they don't have to assign someone long-term at right field. They got Yolki Cespedes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Again, we've been down this road. There is no given that Yolki Cespedes is going to be anywhere near the level of talent that his brother Jonas Cespedes was in the major leagues. That's something that I can't count on. And moving Andrew Vaughn from left field to right field, okay, if he works at it in during spring training, maybe he could be a below average right fielder. I don't think Gavin Sheets is much of a right fielder. And unfortunately for Adam Engel, I just have a I have a trust issue with him health wise. I don't know if he can handle a full season workload anymore, especially with the multiple hamstring issues uh, that he had in, in 2021. Right field is a position that I would like the White Sox to address for the next three seasons. And sure, that opens up the door for White Sox fans who strongly believe in Yoki Cespedes or the guy from Japan that's his name is escaping me right now. Uh, that it was going to be a uh, both a pitcher and right fielder, but now it's just going to be a right fielder. Coloss? Yes, Oscar Coloss. Thank yeah. you. Uh, when can he sign? If it's not until January and there's no CBA, well, that pushes that back. I just don't think, I don't think there's suitable options right now for the White Sox and right field in 2022 or even 2023. I would like the White Sox to spend some serious cash in addressing this position and don't even think about using your internal options. Adam Engel could be your fourth outfielder. And there are ways that you can still keep Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets on the 26 man roster and they could help out at DH left field or first base there. There's opportunities for them to get at bats and help the white Sox offense. But Jim, how are you feeling about right field and with what Rick Hahn had to say about Vaughn sheets and Engel do the white Sox. Am I wrong? Do the White Sox have suitable internal solutions at right field? Not right now. Um, you know, you mentioned Yolki Cespedes, and right now, you know, we've been talking about the White Sox and how they're too right-handed and how they don't draw enough walks and how they hit too many ground balls. 
And Cespedes does all that. He's righty. He hits a lot of ground balls. 58% ground ball rate in Birmingham. Oh, my God. <laughs> he's not walking right now. 3% walk rate in Birmingham. And, you know, that's a case where, you know, that's not, you know, damning of Cespedes. He's just more of a matter of just he's learning how to play stateside. And he should get plenty of time to learn how to play stateside. Like, he should not be on any plans yet, um, you know, any timetable yet. Uh, I think maybe you can see like, oh, maybe 2023, like some kind of debut somewhere there. But um, just right now, you don't exactly know what his full form is. And given that the White Sox spent just $2 million on signing him, like it's not Luis Robert money. They're not spending the kind of money that says like, oh, he's a fixture of this team. You know, the, what, $26 million, it was like a $51 million after overages or something like that, I think, to sign Robert. Like that's not that money. It's $2.05 million for for Cespedes and it'll be probably similar for Colossus. Like that's money. That's just signing that. That's what it costs to sign international prospects. And if you don't use it, you lose it. There's really no, uh, there's no investment there that says the white Sox have to make room for those players. So yeah, I'm not quite sure why they factor in the rhetoric yet, but I, I think when it comes to right field, like there's, you know, I wrote about this, but you know, there are two kinds of flexibility. One's good, one's bad. One's the flexibility of um, just theoretically, if, if you know, you have a, a case where Andrew Vaughn and Gavin Sheets could handle a corner, but also could be a pretty suitable DH, especially if they have the option of helping out in a defensive position. And then second base is, you know, uh, it's been, the, you know, over the course of the last few winters, relatively undervalued. Some nice players have been signed late in the winter for second base and, and had at a nice price. So like, there's no use to really worry about second base or rush into it yet. Just based on how that position is shaken out. Like there are ways to go about this winter and not make any two or not make too big of a deal of any one position and then see what solution pops up to be the best and see how it affects second base and right field and see how you allocate your in-house options the best. And so you don't need to necessarily say one player can't do this or one player should be doing that. Like keep all your options open. Like that's the good kind of flexibility. The bad case of flexibility is where you don't spend. uh, And theoretically, you know, like I'm thinking back to the Manny Machado days, like uh, the White Sox didn't want to spend because they want to maintain flexibility, but they didn't also really do much with the money <laughs> that, that allowed them to be flexible. Just, you know, there, you, you can have flexibility just by doing nothing, uh, by, by sitting on your hands and having all your money available. That's flexibility. It just might mean that your team didn't get better. And so, you know, there, flexibility is neither good nor bad intrinsically. Maybe sometimes it's good depending on whether that team has proven that it takes advantage of it. But I don't think the White Sox are there yet. So I, I'm still open-minded in terms of, how they can go about using Sheets and Vaughn. Like, I, I think there is reason to believe that they might go with Sheets and Vaughn for right field with Angle mixed in, hoping that they get the the season they want out of him. And it's really unfortunate that he had the health issues he had because that would have been a nice season for him to prove himself one way or another and answer that question. I, I think the one thing we haven't talked about yet is that the White Sox did uh, – fire Alan Thomas, uh, the director of strength and conditioning. And I think that's one thing kind of talking about like, you know, going back to Rodon and, and when they brought him back for 3 million last year and saying like, well, are they just doing that because they know him and they'd rather uh, trust, uh, you know, insular decision-making and familiarity uh, rather than go with somebody else who they don't know. Like there's that, but they also had Ethan Katz who might have different ideas for him. And so maybe that's the case where, you know, with, with, angle and these recurring nagging injuries like maybe that's a case where they feel like they can solve his issues with somebody else and I'm open to that idea but I'm just thinking you know in the past whether it's Bryce Harper or George Springer or anybody else like uh, the White Sox just have only gone cheap in right field going from John Jay to Norma Mazzara to Adam Eaton and all have been disasters (laughs) so like part of it I can see them talking themselves into the idea that going with internal options who have proven themselves to a certain degree, at least proven that they can survive in the majors and might have some upside in Sheets and Vaughn, that might be better than going the uh, dumpster diving route for guys like Eaton who might be on their last legs. Like I can see them talking themselves into it and saying like they're actually being noble 
by giving the playing time to the young guys and trusting them. And, you know, maybe there's a payoff there, but uh, just, you know, with the White Sox unwillingness to solve right field once and for all, it does seem like I'm inclined to think that they'd just be kicking the can of the decision for one more year and uh, ultimately getting rewarded just the same for their lack of resources and actually, you know, paying to the position what it needs to be solved. It's been a terrible decade for right field production. So what's another year kicking the can down the road? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Scott Boris did tell the beat reporters for the White Sox that the White Sox do have a meeting scheduled with Scott Boris to talk about his other as far as players that he represents. So there's options with Boris and right field for those that like Michael Conforto. Uh, Scott Boris represents Conforto. Second base, obviously, is Marcus Simeon. Uh, so maybe we'll get some uh, clarity as far as the direction the White Sox want to go in right field and second base. If the White Sox do make a big signing at either of these two positions, which position do you think is most likely to be the big signing, Jim? It seems like right field, just based on what we talked about and how much trouble they've had solving it and how unreliable their solutions are in-house. Um, second base, you have Romy Gonzalez. You have, theoretically, Yolbert Sanchez is looking pretty good um, the last like three months or so, especially when you factor in his Arizona Fall League work. Um, the bat-to-ball skills are pretty good. The defense is pretty good at second base, so he could theoretically be an option at some point next year. Um, you have Jose Rodriguez, who is doing what he can to be interesting uh, at uh, you know getting started double-A at age 20. So I think there are enough solutions and incredible solutions in-house to where they could just try to sign the most appealing second baseman who has fallen through the cracks uh, this winter and just buy themselves a year to see just how this crop of intriguing prospects they have at this position shakes out. Uh, but in the outfield, you know, we talked about Cespedes and such, and just there's really no reason to think that um, they're there yet in terms of a solution to build around and not block. And I think if it comes to the case where, you know, the White Sox have a great problem where Cespedes is all of a sudden a force uh, like Ioannis was in his day, then perhaps like, okay, well, you know, now you have uh, an outfielder too many, but you can trade those guys. You can trade, you know, whether it's trading Cespedes or trading Eloy Jimenez or, or, you know, trading, yeah, like say, you just theoretically, like they signed like a Michael Conforto, like not that they, they could trade him right away, but just theoretically like players can be moved, especially like if Conforto has a bounce back season, the way like they thought he was going to be a star, you know, rather than this down year, he's going into free agency and like, you know, perhaps there's a case where somebody can be moved. So, you know, I think the White Sox, you know, when it comes to depth, um, the White Sox haven't really had any, and every prospect's been needed and every young player's been needed. And when you talk about this, um, you know, this payroll crunch the White Sox might be dealing with, with all their cost-controlled extended players getting more expensive, like, you know, if the White Sox had a, uh, you know, a farm system that's producing the way like, you know, the Dodgers do and the way that the Rays do, like the top teams do, like you can trade those guys and get cheaper. Like you can replace from in-house. Like that's not a problem. If Cespedes is all of a sudden way better and you blocked him, uh, there are ways, you know, you can trade, you might be trading a fan favorite, but ultimately like sometimes just that's a case where there are only so many at-bats that go around, so many starts. And, uh, you know, you have to, um, reallocate resources somehow, but just the White Sox have not been in that position. Like you know, going back to uh, the last time they made the postseason, all the way through now, uh, or I should say like in last time they won the division all the way through now, like every talented player they've had, they've desperately needed to hang on to and they've def- desperately needed to supplement and, and, and finding those gaps to, fill those holes around those talented players never worked. And so I think ultimately like, you know, the White Sox have to proceed as if Cespedes isn't going to happen. And if he does great, <laughs> like they can finally move guys. They can trade uh, depth for a need. Like they, they haven't been able to do that really ever uh, trade depth for a need. Um, and, and so that's why I'd like to see happen is like 
see a, a really strong attempt to solve right field. And should Cespedes or Colossus or anybody else make a case for starting time, then it's going to be fun. Then there's going to be a lot of possibilities to unlock and talk about and, and wrestle with. And we haven't had that kind of fun. And then the starting pitching from the Chicago Sun-Times when asked about the starting pitching staff in which the White Sox right now, and and I am one, I in my offseason plan project, I configured a trade to the San Francisco Giants for Dallas Keuchel in which the White Sox ate eight million of the 18 million owed for Keuchel because Wade Miley is getting $10 million and Heaney is getting 8 million plus the possibility of an additional million dollars in incentive. So he could make up to $9 million next year. I think if Dallas Keuchel were a free agent this off season, he would sign for nine to $10 million and the San Francisco giants need to find four starting pitchers this off season to fill out their rotation. But it does sound like right now that the White Sox are probably more likely to keep Dallas Keuchel for the 2022 season. And when asked about the starting rotation, Rick Hahn said, quote, it would be foolish of us to sit here and think there aren't ways for us to get better, despite as strong as the starting pitching was over the course of those six months. Getting the pitching staff deeper and stronger is a priority. There's different ways of going about doing it. We're going to explore them all. All right, Jim. So we had the Dallas Keuchel review podcast, which for our listeners that didn't get a chance to listen to that, I recommend doing so because we spoke in great length, especially on the question of can the White Sox afford to hope the White, that Dallas Keuchel has a dead cat bounce in 2022 uh, and pitch well enough that they could limit it, limit him to only 159 innings thrown, uh, so that uh, vesting option for 2023 doesn't get picked up. But this is also on Michael Kopech, in which Rick Hahn did say that the White Sox have no expectation of Michael Kopech stepping into the starting rotation and throw 200 innings. They are confident that he can step into the starting rotation. But with saying that getting the pitching staff deeper and strong and stronger is a priority, they do have to find a way to replace the five-war season Carlos Rodon just provided to the White Sox in 2021. On your grocery list for the White Sox this offseason, we talked about right field, we talked about second base, we talked about backup catcher. Do you agree with Rick Hahn that getting another starting pitcher to make them deeper and stronger is the White Sox top priority. I wonder if he means starting pitcher by that, or if it means a case where they need to try to look for minor league signings. Um, You know, it's like spring training, non-roster invitees, whether it's like looking over, you know, maybe at the players coming from, coming back from Japan and, and Korea, like, you know, trying to figure out, like, if there are any players who might have fine-tuned their approach uh, overseas and might be coming back and might be worth a look. Um, whether it's a case like, you know, thinking of somebody like Colin McHugh, who might help the bullpen, but also could help uh, the starting pitchers just by providing some length, providing the option for Tony La Russa to go by with a an opener or like borrowing, you know, three innings here and three innings there from another player, having guys rotate in and out of Charlotte. Like I can see that meaning a few different things. Um, Just when you look at the composition of the pitching staff and how it seems like Keuchel might be their best bet to provide the innings they need based on, um, you know, that the fact that he's under contract and uh, dealing him just might not be worth the trouble um, when you've, factor in there they're gonna to have to um get those innings back somehow yeah you have Kopech there who theoretically should be getting a shot this year you have you know Lynn Giolito Cease like they're getting started so I can't see them being an appealing landing spot for a starting pitcher who wants starts like no matter what like wants a spot in the rotation wants a spot every five days so that's why I think like you know it doesn't necessarily mean starter like you know every five day starter, uh, five inning guy. I think that just could mean somebody who helps stretch out the rotation a bit, whether it's with openers, whether it's with, uh, uh, providing the ability to have a bullpen day, have a, uh, 
you know, random uh, sixth start somewhere, like to stretch out the rotation. I could see that being the case, you know, whether that's somebody like, you know, I think right now, Ronaldo Lopez is probably that guy to be the sixth starter, but yes, perhaps somebody in the bullpen who can also stretch out and help the bullpen have a bullpen day that does not feel like a bullpen day. I think that might be how I'm thinking the White Sox might have to solve it because I just don't see them having the kind of opportunities that lands a starting pitcher who's looking for a starting pitcher job. Not in free agency. I I don't foresee the White Sox going to free agency and signing another starting pitcher like Max Scherzer. Now, that would be cool. I'm just not expecting the White Sox to go that route, Jim. I'm just... I'm just not. However, on the and our next question and the question that we're going to wrap up this episode of the podcast with, what's the next White Sox move? I'm going to be bold in stating that I think the White Sox make a similar trade they did last offseason when they acquired Lance Lynn. And I do think they trade for a starting pitcher that's on their last year of their deal, maybe looking at Oakland. Hmm at Sean Manaya or old friend Chris Bassett and slide Michael Kopech back into the role that he served in 2021 because I, I just don't see the White Sox, the White Sox starting pitchers, even though we talk about how many starts, I think all of them missed uh, during 2021. They were largely healthy for the entire season. So there are going to be opportunities for Michael Kopech to get starts next year. And the White Sox are still going to be concerned about the amount of innings Kopech is throwing next year. Instead of Ronaldo Lopez being that swing man, if the White Sox traded for another starting pitcher to replace the five-war season Carlos Rodon is leaving behind... Then that gives the White Sox the option of moving Michael Kopech back to that swingman role. And perhaps they have a little bit more confidence in him throwing two, three innings when he gets an opportunity to pitch in games, maybe piggyback off Dallas Keuchel starts in which Keuchel goes four or five innings. And then Kopech picks up the two to three before handing the ball off to Liam Hendricks to close out games. Uh, just a thought, but that's what I think the White Sox next move is. And I know I'm being bold in saying this um, because it's something that I don't think a lot of people are expecting, but I would say the White Sox trade for a starting pitcher is their next offseason move. What do you think about that idea? Well, I'm, that sounds like Brandon McCarthy a little bit. Hmm. In, tw- in 2005, like when they, when he got some starts and looked like he could be a promising contributor to a White Sox rotation after El Duque, you know, just, you know, after he came and went and, you know, he pitched, he should have maybe gotten a spot on the um, postseason roster, but didn't. And thankfully, you know, El Duque got the, the job and did his thing. But like the following year, it seemed like it was going to be McCarthy's job, but then they went and acquired Javier Vasquez and McCarthy was put in the bullpen. He got a couple uh, spot starts, but otherwise, Spent the year in the bullpen, and then they traded him for John Danks after the season. So he never got his uh, starting job, never got his uh, best unencumbered shot to hold down a job in the White Sox rotation. So that's what kind of came to mind for me when you mentioned that. And, you know, the thought of trading Kopech has crossed my mind before just because of all the uncertainty that he's had over the last few years with the opting out and with the surgery and with the, you know, just tabloid headlines and such just came to mind where uh, I could see the White Sox being of a certain mindset to want to trade him if they feel like his value is still high. So that's what came to mind when you mentioned that. I would still keep Michael Kopech. Yeah. I mean, they kept McCarthy for the entire season while Vasquez was there. It was just the following season. Then they traded him. Yeah. I'm looking at Brandon McCarthy's baseball reference page because I do remember that he was young. He was 21 years old when he was on the 2005 Chicago White Sox. And obviously the John Danks trade and he made 22 starts for the 2007 Texas Rangers and then injuries got in the way. And then McCarthy's best season wouldn't happen until 
2014, uh, when he had a 2.89 ERA with the New York Yankees for 14 starts and then signed on with the Dodgers and then ended his career with the Atlanta Braves in, in, in 2018. I, I am hopeful that Michael Kopech has a far better and more successful career and less injured career uh, than Brandon McCarthy. But if, if Rick Hahn is aiming to have his pitching staff to be deeper and stronger, and we know that Oakland is currently having a fire sale, you could throw Cincinnati in the mix as well. Luis Castillo has already mm-hmm. been rumored to be available in trade. Maybe Sonny Gray could be available. We heard rumors last offseason that the White Sox were inquiring about Sonny Gray's availability before completing the Lance Lynn trade. There are those options, and that's why I'm thinking before December 1st that Rick Hahn surprises everyone here, and he finds a replacement of Carlos Rodon via the trade path and acquiring someone that is entering their final year of arbitration to add into the starting rotation that pushes Dallas Keuchel to be your number five starter. And you Mm -hmm. have a stronger front four of that rotation with Giolito, Lynn, Cease, and whoever they acquire via trade. I don't mind it. I think it's a case where we saw the value of that during the regular season, just having that kind of rotation that just... It's hard to, when you have a rotation like that and you have, um, especially during the first half when it was Lynn and Giolito and Cease and Keuchel, uh, when when Keuchel was in his better form during the first half, um, you really saw a case where just like, oh, this is, it's hard for this team to hit a losing streak just because, you know, you might have a a lost series or a bad week, you know, just dropping two series, but it's hard to go on like a skid that really allows a trailing team to make up ground or, um, you know, causes like a direct, um, you know, like say like a head-to-head series in the division to flip the standings over. Uh, that's, that's, I think, where it's a case where you, you could support that move and say like, well, if they want to have the kind of year they had last year in the division, um, then it makes sense to replace Rodon directly. Uh, I should have, should have mentioned to Rodon in that uh, first half rotation that was you could use an all star and such. Just having those five guys just really made it hard to or really raised the floor of what the White Sox could do. Like it, when you had all those five guys pitching well, it took the worst case scenarios for everything else out of the equation. So I think it does make some sense to replace Rodon in that fashion, and it does make sense I think to certainly ask to see what, you know, what the asking price for a Castillo or a Gray or Manaya or Chris Bassett is. So, no, I, I think it's a, a decent idea. All right, so your turn. What do you think the next move will be by the White Sox this offseason? I'm going boring, but I think I'm going to say backup catcher just because it is kind of a thin market. Uh, when Tucker Barnhart uh, got acquired by the Tigers, you know, a lot of people were commenting like, oh, that's a great move for the Tigers because the catching market's pretty rough, especially if you're looking for somebody to pick up a lot of playing time. And I think uh, just given the state of the market and uh, just given that you might have to choose a defense first guy, I can see there being a run on catchers, especially since like when it comes to the CBA, that shouldn't really be a roster spot or a position like the 34-year-old backup catcher is not going to be particularly affected by how the CBA works out. Very true. <laughs> they will not. They will not. Do you think anyone signs for more than, let's say, a $30 million contract before December 1st? Or do you foresee many of the free agents sitting back and waiting to see what happens come December 1st? I could see... I could see somebody signing. Because we had this Twitter space uh, for those that didn't get a chance to listen for the qualifying offer deadline uh, this past Sunday. And I'm shocked Chris Taylor got a qualifying offer. Mm -hmm. And if I were advising him, I would advise to take said qualifying offer because I don't think he's getting more than $18.4 million as far as in a season for 2022. And if he were to accept it, 
he's still going to get playing time. Maybe he's what the Dodgers look for at second base. Chris Taylor could be their starting second baseman as they move Trey Turner from second base to shortstop. I don't think the Dodgers are going to bring back Corey Seager. But if Taylor were to decline that qualifying offer, I'm wondering if he would be the first guy, one of the sleepers that a team knowingly that they're not going to be competitive for Marcus Simeon, but they want someone that could help out in the middle infield. I wonder if Chris Taylor would be one of the quote unquote marquee free agents to sign before December 1st. Could be. I'm thinking like somebody like Justin Verlander. Ah, okay. Like somebody who, uh, you know, might know where he wants to pitch and like the Astros might want him back. So I could see that being a case where he signs like a two year, $40 million deal or something. Yes. And he's 39 years old. I don't know. I I'd feel, I don't know how I'd feel about paying a 40 year old Justin Verlander $20 million a pitch. Well, maybe with incentives or something like that, you know, like with incentives to get to 40, yeah. 40 million, something well, like that. Just all of these uh, free agent predictions, everyone's had them except for us. Usually when we do the prediction game, we just try to guess where players are going to sign with what teams and we'll launch that soon uh, on SoxMachine.com. But the, the contract guesses are all over the place uh, this year. Uh, so I, yeah. it's hard to guess. And that's what everyone's doing even if they do have some inside information, perhaps from a team executive or from an agent that they know on what they're they're asking for, they're, they're really all over the place this year. So that's why I was saying Chris Taylor, but Justin Verlander does make a lot of sense. And uh, we'll see. The GMs, they're no longer, they don't longer have the meeting at the fancy resort north of San Diego, California. They all go back home. And now they have to meet via Zooms or call each other or text each other if they decide to make any moves. But uh, to quickly recap as far as this episode, Jim and I both think that Craig Kimbrell is going to be traded by the White Sox at some point. Do you think he's the first closer domino to fall? Or do you think Iglesias or Canley Jansen signed first before Kimbrell's dealt? I think Iglesias might be the first. Okay. I'm I'm wondering if he accepts the qualifying offer. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Like he could be the you know, he could he could resolve things very quickly. And that's uh, November fifteenth is the deadline for those that have the qualifying offer to accept. If Iglesias does, and the Angels are one team out of the Kimbrel sweepstakes, and uh, then it's probably the Dodgers and Phillies battling against each other for Kenley Jensen, and maybe whoever doesn't get to. Have Kenley Jensen uh, calls up Rick Hahn to trade for Craig Kimbrell so they got somebody in the ninth inning. So that does make sense for Iglesias to be the first domino. Uh, I don't think Carlos Rodon is coming back. I'm assuming you don't think he's coming back. Nope. I, that's a change in stance for me just because I tried to uh, reverse engineer my uh, what happened last year where I thought he had thrown his last pitch for the White Sox and came back. So... I tried to outguess myself and say, well, I think everything says he's not coming back, so he's coming back. <laughs> and now I, I'm i going to acquiesce and say he's not coming back. And I think the White Sox do find outside help for right field and second base this offseason. Do you think they do it for both positions or just one, Jim? I think just one. I think I'd have to see them have the appetite to go for both. And then uh, starting pitching, I think the White Sox acquire another starting pitcher via trade. Do you think that they make any additions to the starting rotation? I know you said that it's not a bad idea that I had. But... Yeah. I, if I had to bet, I would say no. At least, you know, not meaningful like a, a, Manea, a Manaya Bassett type acquisition. Like not at that level. I can see them trying to add arms elsewhere that might be able to, you know, produce one internally you know whether it's like an nri or somebody who you know just might be more of a swingman that they feel like they can add length to but i'm gonna say no but i like your idea and i could see it happening so I don't, i'm not that's not a strong no for me it's just more of uh, if i had to bet i would say no and jim thinks that the next white Sox move is a minor one um, but it'll 
drop a, it'll drum up a lot of conversation if the White Sox do sign a backup catcher, especially for those that think highly of Zach Collins and Sebi Zavala and what it says about their near future with the 2022-26 man Chicago White Sox roster. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast as we recap the 2021 GM meetings by miracle. And that's what it sounds like right now as far as the CBA negotiations. If the CBA is agreed upon, a new CBA before the deadline, uh, there will be the winter meetings that will spark some news. That will be happening in mid-December. And uh, we'll be capturing all that news as well. But so you understand where my head is at, listeners. I am preparing for the winter meetings not happening. Uh, So right now I don't have any winter meeting plans for the podcast, but we'll see if things change. But right now it sounds like it's going to be a miracle uh, that there'll be a new CBA before it expires on December 1st. And uh, hopefully between now on November 11th, to December 1st, there is some more movement happening in Major League Baseball that still continues the conversation before we have the conversation that nobody wants to have, which is a possible lockout coming for Major League Baseball. But for those that just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And you can subscribe to the Sox Machine podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. And you can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. For new and existing listeners that have not signed up, you can do so at patreon.com slash Sox Machine, in which our Patreon supporters get additional content, exclusive content, as Jim has been answering P.O. Sox questions from our Patreon supporters and posting that column weekly on Monday. So if you have a question that you would want to ask us during the offseason, our Patreon supporters get that opportunity, and Jim shares his thoughts uh, answering those questions for the site. Our Patreon supporters also get an ad-free version of the podcast and website, and they get the first opportunity at our new Sox Machine swag. We have monthly plans. We have annual plans. We have monthly plans starting at $2 a month. So if you enjoy your work and want more, go to patreon.com slash and sign up today. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.